Hello again. Last time, I introduced the subject of Dante's Divine Comedy uh, by means of relating it to the central symbol and symbolic map of my book, The Productions of Time, and in particular to the aspect of that map, uh, this mandala shape of a circle with a cross in it, particularly the part of that that is the vertical axis inside the circle, up and down. And uh, that is a map of the journey of Dante the character in the Divine Comedy. He will, in the Inferno, the first of the three canticles of the poem, go down the vertical axis through the nine levels of hell, as Dante conceives it, ending at the center of the earth. Never mind the fact that modern geology says you couldn't possibly do that. In Dante's time, you could. And down he goes. Then in the other two canticles, the Purgatorio and the Paradiso, he will go up the vertical axis, up the seven-story mountain of purgatory, and then beyond that, up into the heavens, into the area of the stars and planets, which is identified with Christian heaven. So the ups and the downs are the Christianized version of this age-old symbol called the axis mundi, the axis of the world. We are a Middle Earth, as Tolkien called it, with worlds above and worlds below. And Dante is going to make this journey. And we are ready to finally open uh, the Divine Comedy to the first of 100 cantos, the short, uh, they aren't really chapters, but short sections of the poem, exactly 100 of them, 34 in the Inferno, 33 in the Purgatorio, and 33 in the Paradiso for a total of 100. Note the repetition of threes and the fact that hell, being hell, breaks the symmetry, the perfect symmetry. Uh, threes in honor of the Trinity. Running through the Divine Comedy are a whole succession of symbolic threes and nines, uh, even down to the ground level of the form of the verse itself. If you look at a copy of the Divine Comedy, whether it's in the Italian or in a translation, almost always they will preserve the form of what you will see are tercets, sets of three lines, and in the original Italian, those rhyme, though most English translations wisely do not attempt to imitate the Italian rhyming. But threes, uh, the form is called terza rima, and threes in honor of the Trinity, or three times three, nine. And in the first of these 100 cantos, uh, we open the Divine Comedy with three of the most famous lines in the entirety 
of world literature, so famous that I have seen them quoted in the original Italian, Dante writing in his vernacular Italian rather than the educated language of Latin. And the lines run midway on the journey of our life. I woke to find myself in a dark wood, for I had wandered off the straight path. Utterly famous lines. Midway along the journey of our life, and as I said last time, if you consult the footnotes to an adequate edition, you'll learn that what this means is that the poem alleges to take place in the year 1300. And at that point, Dante, born in 1265 AD or CE, is midway 35 years along the typical journey of threescore years and 10, 70 years. Uh, he is having what we would call his midlife crisis, exactly in the midlife moment. Midway, I found, I woke up and found that I am lost. He isn't the first person or the last person to wake up in middle age and find that he was lost. And where is he? He's in a dark wood because he wandered off the straight path. And what we encounter here immediately is the technique that Dante employs thoroughgoingly throughout the Divine Comedy, though at some points it's much more obvious than others, and that is the technique called allegory, which is a standard literary technique. It's not unique to Dante by any means, but Dante is one of the most famous examples of it. Allegory goes back to the Greek root allos, meaning other. And in an allegorical work, everything, every character or hypothetically every event in the plot has an other meaning attached to it as if by a little label. Everything is being labeled with a second, higher, abstract or conceptual meaning. And some very famous works of literature through the Middle Ages and the Renaissance are allegorical works of literature. As an example of what this means, if you take, for example, Spencer's Fairy Queen, the great Protestant epic, Dante's is the Catholic epic, Spencer's is one of the two great Protestant epics in English, along with Milton's Paradise Lost. The Fairy Queen is about King Arthur's knights, but in Spencer's version, those knights also, each of them stand for a different virtue of one sort or the other. St. George, in the first book of the Fairy Queen, is the patron saint of England, which St. George is, but he is also the knight of holiness, so that everything he does exemplifies some aspect of the virtue of holiness. Uh, in the second book, Sir Guyon is the knight of temperance or moderation, and everything he does <clears throat> exemplifies the virtue of moderation and so forth. This 
was the most popular technique of the Middle Ages and the Renaissance for major literature for the very good reason that this was a very spiritual period of time and everything in the concrete, ordinary world of our senses was held to have a second invisible spiritual meaning and that was what the allegory was expressing. Allegory can express religious concepts, also political concepts or both at once and was as popular as that period of time in which religion gave a spiritual dimension to things, finally dying out with the arrival of realism in the 18th century, but some very famous works in which often the key to the allegorical significance of the character was in the character's name. A famous medieval drama, Every Man, the title refers to the actual name of the character. He is every man. In Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, at the very end of the allegorical period, uh, the main character's name is Christian because he is the typical wayfaring Christian and so forth. Dante is rarely that much of a labeler. You often have to figure out what allegorical significance that events or characters have. He doesn't usually tag his allegory quite so blatantly or simplistically, which can lead to problems of the opposite sort. Labeling can kind of be simplistic. On the other hand, there are some elements of allegory, as we'll see in the very first canto, where if you don't make your labels clear enough, Nobody's going to know exactly what's being spoken of. But at any rate, uh, Dante in the Divine Comedy wrote one of the great allegorical poems. If you want to read more about allegory, let me recommend to you a great critical work by C.S. Lewis called The Allegory of Love. Uh, clear back in the year 1936. C.S. Lewis, of course, was one of the great Christian writers. He is the author of the Narnia series of children's books, uh, but he was also one of the great literary critics of the 20th century, and it is a fascinating book about the allegorical tradition. Which brings us back to that dark wood. Okay, the dark wood is not a particular wood. Don't consult a map of Italian geography to find out where the wood is. Dante is full of very specific references to Italy, to history, both Italian and world history, but the wood is pure allegory. If you read glosses, you will find it is sometimes referred to, though not by Dante himself exactly, as the wood of error. And that's a good term for it because the word is being used in its root sense. It is error, yes, I had lost the straight path. I had made an error, a mistake. But our word error goes back to a root meaning to wander. In the Middle Ages, you have the tales of chivalry 
filled with knights errant. And you have to know that that doesn't mean that they wandered around making errors, although often they did. But it goes back to the French errant, meaning wandering. Dante here is wandering, but he is wandering off the straight path, the right path. And we get the first of many biblical echoes here from the Gospel of John in which Jesus says, I am the way. Wandering off the way means wandering away from the straight way that is the road to salvation into a dark wood of error in all senses, the error of mistake, the error of wandering. And in midlife, I lost my way. And it's terrifying. Dante is a highly intellectual poet, but he is not simply a conceptualizer. Allegory notwithstanding, there are moments of great intense emotion in the Divine Comedy. And the emotion here is dark terror, dark fear. Death was scarcely more bitter than the experience of this dark wood. So, following the narrative, he tries to climb up. He finds a mountain with the sun shining up at the top because he's down in this dark wood. The sun is up overhead, and if he climbs to the top of it, he'll be in the sunlight. And he tries to climb that wood, but he is forced back into the wood by more allegory, four-footed allegory. Three beasts cross his path and block it. A leopard, a lion, and a she-wolf. Okay more allegory, boys and girls. What are these? It doesn't take a great amount of sophisticated theological background to guess that if he's lost the straight path in a Christian sense, these must stand for, allegorically, three types of sin. Okay, a leopard, a lion, and a she-wolf. What types of sin and this is what I meant by you take the risk as an allegorical writer if you don't attach labels that nobody's going to know what you're talking about. 700 years of commentary later, we are still not totally sure what types of sin Dante had in mind. In the Middle Ages, because everything material or physical was said to symbolize something spiritual, you could consult handbooks. And for animals, animal allegory, you could consult what were called the bestiaries, books of animals and what they allegorically symbolized. And in those traditional readings, uh, leopard, lion, and she-wolf were traditionally supposed to stand for the sins of lust, pride, and avarice. The lion is pride, and we can see that pretty easily. 
why a leopard would stand for lust is not immediately clear, or a she-wolf for avarice, but so it was. They had their reasons. And uh, is this the case? We're not sure, though it's suggestive, because Dante is writing personally here, and as we will see, there are some indications later in the poem that Dante may well be accusing himself on some level of the sins of lust and pride. Avarice, well, who knows, though sometimes, uh, in order to make it fit, critics will expand the meaning of avarice beyond just money to include political ambition, and that would certainly fit Dante, and in fact, we will find an example of that even before the end of the first canto, which is what we're talking about in this particular podcast. So, lust, pride, and perhaps political ambition, but whatever, three types of sin have forced me off the path into the dark wood, and I am alone and absolutely terrified when cavalry to the rescue a figure suddenly appears as he is being forced back further and further into the dark wood he makes out a figure coming towards him and here again the moments and you have to read dante carefully not just for the big comic book adventure plot events, though it is it is a great adventure poem. But there are moments, <clears throat> even in translation, where feeling comes through and the poetry comes through. And the absolutely, to me, haunting line, my eyes made out a figure coming towards me of one whose voice has grown faint perhaps from too much silence. This will turn out to be Dante's rescuer and become Dante's guide through two-thirds of his adventure, through hell and through purgatory. And it is another actual real-life figure like Dante himself. It is the Roman poet Virgil, one poet coming to the rescue of another, Virgil being the great poet of the Roman Empire, author of the great Roman epic, the Aeneid. This is wild. We are so habituated to the Divine Comedy, it is so famous as to become almost a cliche in a way that we risk forgetting how radical and risk-taking Dante could be. Okay, you make yourself your own protagonist, then you get put another famous poet as a guide and rescuer in an, a pagan poet to be the guide to two-thirds of the Christian cosmos, one poet leading another. What in the world is going on here? And... Uh, <clears throat> it's wonderfully daring, 
and yet not just random by any means. Nothing Dante does is random. My notes that I used all the years for teaching the Divine Comedy in my World Literature course list at least six reasons that it would be Virgil of all people to show up to be Dante's rescuer. First of all, and probably one that people could guess, the Divine Comedy is not a typical epic in many ways, and some of those ways we'll come upon as we continue to study it. But Dante does, he gives off clear signals after a point that he does intend it to be read as being in the epic line, the epic tradition. And in particular, it is a successor to, and its role model is, Virgil's Aeneid, the Latin epic. So the great Roman poet is Dante's mentor. He is going to show up as a rescuer, but the Aeneid itself is Dante's chief role model in terms of the epic tradition. Epics were stories of heroes, and we've already said that Dante is being subversive here because he is a very unheroic hero, and he knows that, and in fact insists on that as early as Canto II. But insofar as the Aeneid was an epic of a hero, the hero Aeneas, that the epic is named after, Aeneas was a new type of hero. Instead of just the warrior conqueror whose glory is his fame at war, the great virtue of the hero Aeneas is not so much war talent, though he certainly has that, as self-sacrifice, unselfish sacrifice for a greater cause. And in Aeneas's case, it was to found what would later become the Roman Empire. The theme of self-sacrifice is a theme, as we'll see again, that's very important to Dante. It is the opposite of the greatest of all the seven deadly sins, the sin of pride, which may be one of the beasts, as we've said. And the self-sacrificing hero was a kind of hero amenable to Christian values. Not only that, but there was a theory that Dante is working on in the Divine Comedy about the Roman Empire. And that is this, that the Christian God caused the Roman Empire to come into existence. You know, Virgil thought it was the head of the Olympian gods, Jupiter or Jove. But of course, you know, Virgil was a pagan and he didn't know the real truth. In the real truth, it was a Christian God who, as part of his providence, caused the Roman Empire to come into being in order that Christ could be born into the middle of it, and therefore Christianity could be established within the empire and become thereby a world religion. Some religions, and Judaism is one of them, 
do not attempt to proselytize and convert the entire world. They will accept converts, but they are not what the religion experts call world religions like Christianity, Islam, Buddhism, that attempt to be universal religions. And to get Christianity established within the Roman Empire, what would happen in the third century of the Common Era is that the Emperor Constantine converted to Christianity. And if your emperor becomes Christian, guess what? So do you. Christianity is quickly declared the official religion of the Roman Empire, and it went everywhere the empire did, which was everywhere in the well-known uh, anecdote that the Roman Empire eventually conquered the entire known world of its time, east, west, north, and south. And it was therefore a matrix for the spread of Christianity. And the story of the Aeneid is the story of the establishing of what would later, after the time of Aeneas, turn into first Rome and then the Roman Empire. So the very themes of the Aeneid are also relevant to the Divine Comedy. There is another reason. Virgil wrote another book before the Aeneid called the Eclogues. And the word Eclogues means selection, and that's what the Eclogues was, a collection of ten shorter poems. And of those ten poems, the fourth one, after Virgil's time, became known as the Messianic Eclogue. It was held to be an unconscious prophecy granted by grace to a pagan poet of the birth of Christ to come. Because in the Messianic Eclogue, so-called the Fourth Eclogue, the poet speaks of the birth forthcoming of a miraculous child to a virgin who would restore the Golden Age. Now, Virgil died in 19 BC. He did not, there's no possible influence on him of the Bible or even of the Jewish tradition. What did he have in mind? More endless critical controversies about what that might mean. Nevertheless, we know what it sounds like. And it was taken to be this miraculous prophecy, unconscious prophecy. So Virgil has a special Christian importance uh, because of that. Um, there's a more personal reason for Virgil. He's another fellow Italian, you could say. That is Virgil, he was Roman, of course, there was no Italy in his time, but he was from the later Italian town of Mantua in northern Italy. He was often known as the Mantuan, and he is in a certain sense a countryman of Dante's. Finally, uh, on an allegorical level that we'll encounter later, Virgil stands for the attribute of reason which is counterintuitive, granted, but 
you know, why would a poet stand for reason if you wanted somebody to exemplify reason allegorically? You would think Dante would pick Aristotle, who was the highly respected philosopher of the Middle Ages. But no, it's Virgil. It's a bit strained, admittedly. It doesn't really fit Virgil as a character, but there is a necessity for representing the power of reason, and Virgil is it, whether it quite fits or not. And he will help save Dante. He is here to help rescue Dante. And yet, let me revert back to that haunting line about the figure whose voice is faint, perhaps from too much silence. There is a lonely, sad isolation, a melancholy surrounding that figure before Dante even knows who it is. And there's a reason for that. Virgil, great as he was, rescuer as he is, and worthy person as he was in his own life, cannot go to heaven, is damned. And he tells Dante this at the end of Canto One. As we'll see in Canto Four, Virgil eventually must return from the level of hell that he comes from, which is called limbo, which is a special level of hell in which those who died without being baptized had to go. In the Middle Ages, all the way up to modern times, if you were not baptized, Catholic teaching said that you could not be saved because baptism washes original sin off of people's souls, and therefore, if you happen to die without being baptized, you died with original sin on your soul, and that is a mortal sin, a, dam a sin worthy of damnation. And this was especially poignant for two groups of people, both of whom are in Dante's version of Limbo in Canto Four. Stay tuned. Uh, one was unbaptized infants. If, you're, if a child died before the parents could baptize it, the child would have to go to limbo. The other group are the virtuous pagans. Plenty of evil pagans that just go to one level or another of hell that would punish their particular sin. But the virtuous pagans are, like Virgil, good in every way except being baptized and yet, the letter of the law said that they could not enter heaven. We'll speak more of why what seems to us a terribly unjust rule should have held all the way up to modern times. I will end this uh, discussion of Canto One by saying that uh, this rule was in place and is still halfway in place all the way up to just a few years ago, more on this later, when Pope Benedict 
within our lifetime, finally abolished the unbaptized infant part of the ruling, of the teaching, uh, that this is certainly not in the Bible. It grew up as a church teaching, and it's not based on anything, and Benedict finally decided to abolish it so that all the many hundreds of years of unbaptized infants, people being anguished because of these guiltless children, not being able to go to heaven, that's all over. But the virtuous pagans, Benedict didn't speak of one way or the other. And that's Virgil, virtuous and yet denied heaven. The way Virgil puts it in the poem is odd and confusing to us. He says, I rebelled against his law, but the, re the law that Virgil rebels against is the law that you have to be baptized. So he violates a ruling like somebody who violates an obscure rule of the IRS or something on his income tax. Virgil is a haunting, sad figure. The poem is called a comedy in the sense of a happy ending. And the Christian myth is a comic, happy ending myth. But within it, Dante shows there is tragedy and sadness. We will take up our narrative from this point and go on to Canto II and to the beginnings of the journey and the motive for the journey next time.